sure I'm fired up. There we go. Yo. Yeah. Yeah, we're not going to do that today, though. Yeah. Uh, nope, not after we're done either. But but um, we'd be happy, like, if you want to share something before with us, then you could always talk with us some beforehand. You know, we could always talk, and then we could talk about something in the future, maybe. Okay, sure. And that's and that's very true. He, yeah, no, no, he does. He speaks through. He speaks through everybody for sure. Alrighty. So what we're gonna do first is we're going to pray. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We just recognize that you are King, and that we need you. We love you. We think of those who aren't here with us today, those who are hurting, those who are sick, um, those who are discouraged, those who just um, had to do other things today. We ask your blessings upon them and that you would be with them. Father, we ask that you would speak through your word today, um, that we would hear it, that we would be changed. We're so thankful for the good news um, that you are alive. And so we just proclaim that and we believe that. So just be with the rest of the service in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we're going to do before we dismiss the kiddos is we're going to do our scripture reading. So if you want to stand, we will do that. going to be from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's God's Word. Amen. Children, you're dismissed. So Easter is not over. 
right? We believe that. Easter is not over. The resurrection of Jesus that we celebrated last week is the same resurrection we celebrate this week. And I was thinking, I don't just mean celebrate that Jesus is alive, but we celebrate the reality that something new has happened, something new has begun in the world. There is a division in history when Jesus conquered death. The future age to come invaded the present. And I mentioned this a little bit last week. How some thought that what would happen at the end of things, the general resurrection of everyone, that it had begun now, that it had begun in Jesus, that Jesus had rose from the dead. What was supposed to happen in the future started now. And so there's a fancy term in theological language that some people use. It's called eschatology. Maybe you guys have heard that, maybe not. That part's not important. But what is important is that the meaning of that word, the study of the last things, that that's not just a future thing. That's not just trying to figure out when Jesus might come again, but it's about what has already happened in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why it's called the first fruits that Jesus rose from the dead, which is a guarantee that in the future, all will rise. And so, Jesus kicked off the last things that the kingdom had come. That's why He kept going around saying, hey, the kingdom has come. The kingdom is in the midst of you. We also see shortly after that that the Holy Spirit had come. Remember at the day of Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit has come in a new way upon the followers of Jesus shortly after His resurrection, after His ascension. And that all of that has to do with how we live right now. That all of that matters for the way in which we think about life now. We live as a people upon whom the future has already come. So we're defined by, we are empowered by future realities future realities that have entered the present, like the defeat of death. Jesus is alive. Death is defeated. The great enemy is dying and will one day fully die. The conquering of Satan, that Satan has been defeated. His accusations, his power, that Jesus has disarmed him. We, other future realities, that forgiveness that forgiveness from sin, no condemnation, freedom from sin, that that future pronouncement has come into the present. And so we view everyday activities different than other people in the world should view them. Wisdom and power and authority and the way to live life, what to do with our bodies, how we act with other people, that all of our values, our mindsets, our worldviews are in contrast to what the worlds are. But the problem is, is that I, we, all of us tend to forget this. We are prone to forget. We suffer from resurrection amnesia. Resurrection amnesia. You know what that is. That's when you forget something. You watch the movies about amnesia. And I was thinking, we're like time travelers in a sci-fi movie, in a sense, or a Christopher Nolan movie, if you know who that is, that's kind of discombobulated after traveling. We forget what has actually happened to us. We forget what God has done for us, what God is doing 
in us. And that is one of our major problems as Christians as we forget what has happened to us, what has happened in the world. And so we must remember our past and have hope in the promised future. Remember, for Christians, hope is not a wish. Hope is a guarantee. Hope is something that will absolutely happen. And so we are driven by hope. We're not to be like the Corinthians. So, transition point, back to Corinth. And you go, well, what does all that introduction have to do with? That's exactly kind of the framework that we need to think through in this passage. And I think I'll show you how and why. We do not want to be like the Corinthians who forgot and began to live just like everyday people in ancient Corinth, governed by the ways in which Corinth was. And they had too much of Corinth in them, like we've talked about. And so as we now get back to Corinthians, remember we did the first five chapters, now we're going to be in chapter 6, and we find Paul ticked off. Paul is upset. Paul is not happy because of their forgetfulness about what has happened to them, about who they are, that they're living like the world, that they're not living like God's future people. And so if I had a title and I was struggling with what a title would be, I would just say living as people from the future. That's what we do. Again, Easter has not left us. We are Easter people. We live in the now. We do everyday things like we should do in the future, like what we will do in the future at the coming of Christ. But the problem with the Corinthians is they were living like the world. They were not living like God's future people. And they're doing it in sinful ways, in tangible, everyday ways, like sex, like court cases, like manipulating people in relationships, like defrauding each other. And Paul just goes through to say, hey, that's not the kind of people that we're supposed to be. We're not supposed to live like that. We live by a different value system. We live by a different kingdom that is coming and has come. So that is the framework of this practical passage. Remember, these are letters. You've, you've probably heard people say this before. Like The Bible's not a systematic theology textbook. It doesn't just kind of chop up, well, God, and here's all the things about God, and sin, and here's all the things about sin, and the future things, here's all the things about that. That the letters were, hey, this was going on. Oh, well, man, I've got to deal with this, that, and the other thing. right? And so we all need wisdom in our culture, too, of, well... Because of Easter, because of what God has done, how do we figure out all these different things in everyday life? What do we need rebuked in us? What do we need affirmed in us? And so these are letters. We're getting in on a one-sided conversation. We're going to kind of try to fill in the blanks here. I'm going to read some stuff that might help us kind of get a sense of what was happening there, especially with issues of legalities and litigation and, and court. Because we can't just think in our modern mindset. We've got to kind of think of what's going on there. So verse 1 is kind of this idea of how dare you. Okay? That's what one commentator said. How dare you? That's kind of Paul's attitude right now. Remember, he's just got done talking about, hey, there's sexual, there's sexual immorality among you. 
You're not living a way that holy people should live. And we talked about how it got tied to the Levitical codes. We're going to see that again um, in, in this particular chapter. How Paul's whole mindset is based on the Old Testament. And he's saying, hey, wow, there's stuff reported among you that's not even like what's going on in the world. It's even worse than the world. Remember we talked about that? When the church is worse than the world. That's what was happening then. And so he kind of goes through, hey, a man has his father's wife. And then he goes through how you should judge this man. This person is arrogant about it. You're arrogant about it. He should be sent out of the community. That's not the way future people live. And so he should be removed. So there's that sense of kind of judgment. And we talked about that. How, well, wait a second. I thought Jesus said don't judge. Well, yes, he did say don't judge. But Paul also says you judge in the church. The church should be where the judgment happens. Again, a contrast to what's about ready to go on here in chapter 6. This inside versus outside stuff. And so Paul says, how dare you? And he tells them that we should be living by the heavenly court, by what happens in the future. And I think that has a practical implication on the way we do life now. We can get so kind of excited or upset about the Supreme Court and what they do or don't do and how they rule. And we should be because we want to apply um, God's politics in a sense to ours. But we can get too hung up on that in that we live by the future court, by what God has already done in, in Jesus. And so we don't need to be as concerned about the court systems of the day. We should pray. We should do ethics like the Bible tells us to do ethics. But our, our drive is toward a different kingdom. It's toward a kingdom full of all nations, all people, all tongues, and what God has done in the future and is doing now. And so, what was going on here? We've got this court case going on, obviously. We don't know what it is. Some people say, well, it might have been this, this, this one right here. Maybe, maybe, the, maybe the man and his father were having a court case against each other. That's probably not what it was from what I've read. But there's something going on, and they're taking things to court. So what in the world is happening? I wanted to read a few things that I think might kind of flesh out because I don't know. And we always got to be careful how we read in, but scholars can be helpful because they can give a sense of what was going on in the first century and Rome and all that, which might fill in some gaps here. So, here's a few. Here's one fact. Like modern North American society, Roman society was extremely litigious. So a lot of legal battles and matters going on. Cases began to be heard at dawn and sometimes could be argued as late as sunset. Judges were always chosen from among the well-to-do and the most legal disputes revolved around money. So, first off, you have a culture... Roman culture, court cases going on all the time, all the way till sunset, all day long. But where are the judges? Who's ruling? Rich people. Well to do. Sound familiar. Most legal disputes revolve around money. Sound familiar. So that's some of what is going on there. But, but here's another thing that often happened in the, in the courts. Legal action in the ancient world involved all sorts of dubious activity in an attempt to obtain the hoped-for ruling. Andrew Clark's description of the rhetoric and manipulation that was typical of legal interactions is illuminating. And here's what this person said. 
Hostility expressed in personal insult could be an extremely powerful weapon in the courtroom and was unashamedly used. It must be understood that in first first century litigation, such hostility was not only socially acceptable but also virtually inevitable. The aspiration to support friends and denigrate enemies was in many cases more important than to speak the truth or seek justice done. So basically the point was hostility, insult, denigration of enemies, people of higher status beating up on people of lower status. The issue is not really justice and truth. It's, it's power moves. It's manipulation. And so that's some of what was happening there. Here's another. The legal background in the first eight verses constitute a warning against manipulating fellow Christians for personal advantage. A Christian who has more economic and social standing takes advantage of his or her position. This reflects an attitude of grasping what is not one's own. And this prompts Paul to reflect on a cluster of grasping attitudes and actions, some of which are sexual actions that overstep the mark. The Christian should leave all such grasping practices behind as no longer compatible with being part of God's new creation. The background to legal action in civil lawsuits in a Roman colony in the mid-first century makes a difference. And this is really important in how we read this. It arises from the explicitly Roman character of the administration in Corinth. Roman criminal law in this period was relatively fair and objective. Okay? So in the first century, sounds like, when it deals with criminal law, relatively fair, relatively objective. He goes on to say, this was not the case in civil law. Here judges and even juries expected to receive some quid pro quo. Remember, that's a favor or advantage granted or expected in return for something. Okay? Mafia kind of moves. Here judges and even juries expected to receive some quid pro quo for a favorable verdict. This might come in terms of a straight financial gift with strings, a promised payment, or a debt to be paid by using economic or social influence, or by providing new business opportunities or openings. So again, manipulation, power moves, money, not justice. That civil court cases were often handled in that way, and that's probably what's happening here. And we know that too because Paul isn't just saying never have a lawsuit. Or he's not just saying, hey, never take anything to a state issue because there's times when he appeals. He appeals to higher courts, right? Remember that in the book of, in the book of Acts? So it's interesting that what seems to be happening here is kind of a, a civil law issue, maybe property, fraud, issues like that, business transactions, not criminal issues. And that's just as a sidebar. So we as a church, for instance, if there was domestic violence, sexual abuse, things like that, we are going to quickly move right over to the police department. That's the way it's going to work. Because he's not saying, hey, well, we just kind of, well, we know it all. We have it all under control. We can kind of do it in-house. Well, if you read the news a lot and what's happened in some churches, when stuff happens in-house, weird stuff can happen. Point is, you can't hand over different things to state authorities. But what was going on here was a lot of civil issues, frivolous stuff, stuff that Christians should not be as concerned about. So, when one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? 
Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? So, this again takes me to the introduction. Live in the future present, not the present present. He's saying, hey, don't you know that the saints are going to judge the world? Don't you know what's going to happen in the future? So live like that now. The saints should be dealing with these kind of judgments in-house. So take what's happening in the future and apply it to the present. And so he's appealing to them to think of themselves as God's future people. You're going to judge the world. And that's not just in the sense of court cases and making rulings. But what does it say in Revelation? Look at Revelation 3.21. Amazing picture of what believers will do and the kind of status and authority that they will have in the future. Revelation 3.21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Wow. Throne, rule, reign, kingship. Jesus speaking to the church of Laodicea, saying, hey, the ones who conquer, they get to sit with me on my throne, the same throne that the Father is on. Just an amazing picture of the kind of status and rule and power that saints will have in the future. You see that? Do not know. The saints are going to judge the world. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? So this word for trivial cases is kind of tiny things, little things, stuff that doesn't matter a whole lot. Really, you're going to make a big deal about all of that kind of stuff. Stuff that just happens, business deals, transactions, this, that, and the other thing, power moves. Just saying, hey, don't get hung up on that. Think about your future. Think about what is happening in the future and apply it now. Believers are going to judge the world. You're going to rule the world with Jesus. So don't get hung up on trivial cases. I was thinking of kind of maybe the attitude here of like kids. Not that I would ever see this happen. But arguing over where you're going to sit on the couch. You ever had one of those moments? Or maybe you have them with your adults. Who knows? Okay? <laughs> so like, I mean, I, I see that happen. Big arguments can blow up over where you're going to sit on the couch or where the iPad is going to be put on the table to watch a particular Thing. And again, don't pick on the kids. We can all do that. We can all get hung up on trivial things and get pretty upset. And so, Paul is applying the future principle to say, hey, the world is going to be judged by you. You shouldn't be incompetent to try trivial cases. I'm saying, hey, this should happen in-house, not out of house. Verse 3, do you not know? Again, he just said that in verse 2. Do you not know? says it again in verse 3. Do you not know? What's he doing? Remember. Remember who you are. Remember how life is going to be. Remember the future. Remember the coming kingdom. You know this. You should know this. You do know this, but you're just intentionally forgetting. It's intentional amnesia. Um, so he's just continuing to call them back. Don't you know who you are? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Wow. Supernatural beings. It's wild. It's unbelievable. We're going to judge that God, sometimes we can forget this in our 
materialistic, just focused on kind of the thisness of the world. Angels are real. Supernatural beings are real. Demons, angels, seraphim, go down all different types. You know, God has a divine family in the sense of there are other creatures that we can only hardly even imagine. And humans, men and women, brothers and sisters, you as saints are going to judge it all. You're going to rule and reign on God's new earth. Don't you know that? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So again, that's the practical application. This isn't just big theological truths floating out there. Saying, okay, take that big theological lofty truth about the future and apply it now. The everyday, the tangible, the interpersonal relationships, the what you do or don't do in in courts. Verse 4. So, if you have such cases, again speaking in legal language, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? So again, this is the inside versus the outside, which he's talked about in chapter 5. Deal with this in the church. If you have these kind of things come up, these kind of civil matters, lay them. Why are you laying them before the world? when you could be doing it in-house. In this is about the church's witness. Verse 5, I say this to your shame. So again, kind of mentioned Paul's not happy. He's upset. Man, you should be, this is something you should be ashamed of. And then he uses sarcasm. We talked about that a while ago in Corinthians. Paul the sarcastic talked about comedy and the use of sarcasm. Now sometimes, lots of times in my life I can probably use it in an inappropriate way, but the Bible uses sometimes sarcasm and it's to jolt you and to awaken you to the truth of, of something. And so that's what Paul is doing here. He uses some sarcasm. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Now that wise enough, he's been talking about in, early, in the earlier parts of the chapter. You guys are the wise people. You guys are so hung up on the wisdom of the age and the philosophy and you're showing how wise you are. In the church, hey, if you're so wise, why can't you handle this? Come on, give me a break. So that's what is happening there. Why do you lay, or excuse me, um, can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, kind of poking at their Corinthian wisdom? And other commentators have shown that, that in the first century, some types of education, I think as you went further up, that there was education in legal studies in the first century. So there might have been some among them that, 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 that were legally competent as Christians to handle whatever was going on. You could do this inside. You could do this inside. Also, some translations handle this differently. The ESV treats this more like a question. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes against brother and that before unbelievers? Um, some have this as a command. Here's one take on this. This verse may be read as a command. See the King James Version or the NIV rather than a question. So some say appoint the lowliest. In other words, he might be saying, hey, appoint the lowliest among you. In contrast to the world, this reading reinforces the idea that the least of Christians should be more competent in justice 
than the wisest of pagans. He might just be saying, hey, don't go out into the world and do that. Appoint those among you to do that. Verse 6, But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Again, this inside-outside picture. Hey, don't do this out there in front of everybody. This is not what Christians should be doing. But remember, the flavor here isn't just the witness of the church, which is a part of it, but he's saying, hey, it's about who you are. It's about living in, in a reversal of worldly standards. We've seen that all in the first several chapters of Corinthians. He's trying to remind them of who they are in Christ and that we live by a different kind of wisdom. We do things differently. We need to live by the future and what God has brought into the present. So, don't do this. Don't take brothers and sisters before unbelievers. Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. It's like the fact that you already have this, you're already defeated. Just the lawsuit itself, the fact that you're so hung up on these trivial matters and you're out in court making power moves and manipulation and all these different things, that's already a defeat. The fact that you even have them is a problem. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And again, we kind of go, as good Americans, there's no way I'm going to be defrauded. <laughs> there's, this is not going to happen. Now, we live in a different cultural system. We can still use our rights, our privileges, all that. But we've got to consistently remember the attitude of the believer is still different. That doesn't mean you never use your rights in our particular culture, but it does mean the kind of attitude, we're still, no matter, even if we're using them, we're still not going to have this like grasping, power-grabbing ideal. We live by a future court. We live by a future king. We have a different view on wisdom and the way in which power is taken. So, he says defrauded, which probably gives us what may have been going on here. One commentator says on that word defrauded, the word in particular suggests that some kind of property or business dealing is the problem. So why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? So who's that like? What does that sound like? We just spent a long time in the story of Jesus, right? We spent about four weeks in, in the Gospel of Mark. So I was thinking, why not? Why don't we as believers have passion about the passion the suffering of Christ, rather than a passion for litigation, for grasping for our own rights. The model is Jesus. Is that our model? Are we living by that kind of example? Peter also talks this way. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on a tree that we might die to sin 
and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. So that's our example. Is that who we are? Is that how we behave? Verse 9. Or do you not know, there it is again, you know this, I'm reminding you, do you not know that the unrighteous, look at the footnote, ESV, down number 2, also be translated wrongdoers, do you not know that the unrighteous, the wrongdoers, will not inherit the kingdom of God? I'll drink some water. So it looks like a transition. See, at one point you could have gone, well, let's do a whole other sermon on this paragraph. But it's clearly linked to the previous one, kind of like the whole letter is. But he's saying, hey, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So he's saying, do not affirm sinful practices now that are not in God's future righteous kingdom. So we as the Christian community should not affirm sinful practices in the now, in our culture, in our world, that are not in God's future righteous kingdom. We don't affirm sin, ever. In fact, these kinds of sins, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why wouldn't they inherit the kingdom of God? Well, because that's not the way the rule and the reign of God looks like. That's not the behaviors that accompany God's kingdom. And notice how he says right after that question, do not be deceived. Like he didn't have to throw that in there. Obviously, they were deceived. All of us can be prone to deception. We can be prone to affirming things in our culture, in our world that are sinful. And we can be prone to that. And he's saying, hey, warning here, don't be deceived. It's easy to get deceived. It's easy for the church to get deceived. It's easy for us to get deceived in our, in our world over sin. Sin is deceptive. It can sneak in. And over time, we can say, ah, maybe that's not sin. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. But we do not affirm sinful practices in the now that are not in God's future kingdom. But man, we are prone to adopt cultural practices over future kingdom, over future resurrection life. So this list that he gives, he gives several things. After that colon, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral. Now we talked about that. Talked about that a lot. A couple months ago, the Greek word is pornoi. We talked about it, I think, in the context of when it was used as porneia. This broad bucket general term. Everything outside of the relationship between, in marriage, between a man and a woman. Any kind of sexual behavior outside of that context is sexual immorality. You can look at previous sermons to get at that. But he's saying, hey, that bucket list is not in the future kingdom. We should not practice that in church. What about the next one? The next one. Nor idolaters. 
Again, idolatry would have been rampant in that culture. We talked about the different temple worship that was all over their city. And again, we don't necessarily have a bunch of temples around our city to some Greek god or something. But we got all kinds of worship that happens in all kinds of places. And idolatry is anything that we place above God. It can even be a good thing. We place a good thing above God can become an idol. And saying, hey, idolatry is not welcome. Idolaters do not inherit the kingdom of God. Nor adulterers. So here he gets more specific about a specific sexual sin. Moikoi, I think is how you say it. The technical term for adultery. Cheating on your spouse. Saying, hey, adulterers, those who cheat on their spouses do not inherit the kingdom of God. Next one. Nor men who practice homosexuality. That's how it's translated, but there's actually two words here. And this is going to get a little explicit, but that's because the Greek word does. So there are two words here. And I'm always going to butcher the way the word sounds, so blame me afterwards. There's malakoi. Malakoi. And so that refers to the passive sexual male partner. That first word is there. We don't see that in our text, but that's in the actual Greek. Then there's the word arsinokoitai, which is the active sexual male partner. And that's actually a compound word. The first part is male. The second part is Koitai, which is actually an offensive word. Some people in literature in that time would not even say that word. But Paul uses an offensive, vulgar term for intercourse when he's referring to male intercourse. So it's a compound of both. One is passive, one is active. Which I think, if you have the ESV, and some translations are different, but there's a footnote that says, the two Greek terms translated by this phrase refer to the passive and active partners in consensual homosexual Acts. <clears throat> now, if you keep up with the debate about homosexuality in the church right now, there's one particular type of thing that happened in Rome, um, which again is a word I'm going to butcher, which was pederasty. Fancy term. And again, like I said, I'm going to get a little explicit, but that's because Paul is. One scholar was talking about this particular issue. Pederasty, the most common form, had been an entrenched facet of Greek society. Outstanding Greek philosophers, orators, and poets such as Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Plutarch, and others, greatly admired by Roman society, had not only extolled the praises and virtues of of pederasty in their writings, but also engaged in pederastic unions themselves. So, pause, what is that? That's an adult male with a boy. And that's what was taking place in the Roman culture. That, that would have been a big part of this word, not the only sense of what he's talking about, but he is confronting a specific issue in the culture that doesn't mean, oh, he's only talking about that issue, like some are saying now. But back to this particular scholar. The practice was carried over into the multi-ethnic and pluralistic Roman Empire, biting criticisms of pederasty are provided by Philo, Josephus, and other roughly contemporaneous with Paul. So it wasn't just that action was affirmed by a lot, but also there were other people that were speaking up against it. She goes on. 
Arguments that suggest pederasty was the only known form of homosexuality during the time of Paul, however, are erroneous. As early as circa 385 to 380 BC, Plato's celebrated symposium symposium provided a striking appreciation of adult-adult mutuality in relationships, long-term commitments in which age was irrelevant, and concepts which can only be today be described as homosexual orientation or inversion. While some scholars overemphasize the cultural unacceptability of an adult male engaging in the passive homosexual role as grounds to exclude any form of pederasty, there is nevertheless evidence of homosexual unions in which both the active and passive partners were far beyond boyhood and adolescence. This was due to a departure from traditional sexual roles to a more reciprocal erotic relations by the time of the early empire. And, quote, many homosexual relationships were permanent and exclusive. The emperors Caligula and Nero, who both reigned during the time of Paul, were known not only for their homosexual unions, but for enjoying the passive homosexual role. So, that activity is not in God's future kingdom. And so, it should not be in the church of Jesus Christ. Next one. Thieving. Thieves. Again, this isn't just the Paul's hung up on sex. Nor thieves. Koitai. Or sorry, no. Kleptai. Whoa, kleptai. Kleptomania. You've probably heard that phrase coming from a Greek word. Stealing. Thieves. Those who take things from other people are not welcome in the kingdom of God. That's true. Kleptomania. Yep, they would call that a disease. And so... I was thinking, as we kind of go through this list, I'm going to hit a couple more, but I was just struck by the notion in, in a lot of these that there's this sense of nothing is ever enough. There's this unsatisfiedness. Not enough sex. Not enough money. Not enough things. Not enough as we go on. Beer, wine, bourbon. Go down the list. Not enough. Got to have more. Got to have different things. And just as, man, a call to Christian contentment rather than this grasping and more and unsatisfied, I need more and more and more. Paul's like, no, you don't. So, next one. Greedy. That one should be relatively obvious. And again, we think about our culture involved with so much money, materialism, consumerism, and how all those can become our own idols. The greedy will not inherit the kingdom of God, is what he's saying. Those who aren't satisfied with enough. Nor drunkards. Habitual excessive drinking to intoxication. Again, that's another one that can become alcoholic. Dependency, which obviously there are chemicals that make one dependent. So that's true. It's hard to break. And I was also noticed by how a lot of these things, and we talk about, especially with the sexuality discussion, orientations toward particular things. But there are all kinds of things in these lists that you probably have at least one or two. They're kind of like, yeah, I could kind of get into that. Probably all of these. You might have a particular leaning toward a particular temptation of sin. So again, don't just pick on one of them. That's the danger here. There's a list. There's a list covering all kinds of different things. So drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. Revilers, we talked about that few sermons ago. Attacking the reputation of someone. 
Verbally abusive language, we see a lot of this in our political atmosphere, of just attack on people's character, name-calling, abuse. That kind of language, that kind of use of the tongue is not to be in the church. Swindler, a greedy grasping. That word even has connotations of violence and ferociousness like a wild beast. Swindling, grasping, you're going to swindle and take everything in a kind of a violent, ferocious way. You're going to use the court system. You're going to use the existing cultural systems to, to get your own material, maybe property, money, greedy grasping, which again probably ties back to this very context of what he's talking about here. He lists all these other things, and he throws in at the end, swindling. He throws in their greed. What's happening right here in the court case at hand? Don't be deceived. People who are characterized by practices and lifestyles that engage in all of those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So a hard passage. Because... That's what Christians used to be. That's what Christians used to be. That's what those in Corinth used to be. Verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So I love how he does this. So he says, Do not affirm sinful practices now that are not in God's future kingdom, but he's going to go on and he's going to affirm them in the Gospel. It's always Paul. He's going to hit that law. He's going to hit the legal stuff, hit the law. Hit it pretty hard. Make us feel it. But then, he's going to throw in the good news of the Gospel as what conquers all. That's where the emphasis is. That's where the emphasis is. One commentator, Anthony Thistleton, he said this should be translated something like, and this is what some of you used to be. Hey, hey, this list that I just gave, this is what some of you in the church used to be. And, and this isn't like it's a big church. Some people think it's like 60 people or maybe up to a couple hundred or something. This isn't like some massive mega church. Hey, among you, that's how you used to be. So instead of being who you were, be who you are. That's always the gospel call. It's not, oh, you go do these things to become something. He's saying, no, you have already become something. The verdict of the future has already come into the present. Your justification has already happened. If you have trusted Jesus Christ, your justification, the verdict of the future has come into the present and now there is no condemnation on you. So, be who you are. Live like that's true. Behave like that is true. If we twist that around, we've messed up the good news of the Gospel, of all that we celebrated last week. Last week. We've jacked it up if we reverse that. It is so important to know that the power for Gospel living comes from the Gospel. It doesn't come from the law. If we just say that, don't do this, don't do that, that's not going to inherit the kingdom of God. We're just going to feel beat up. No power. But that's not the good news of the Gospel. It's saying it's been won. Jesus is alive. The verdict of the future has come into the present. 
You are washed, sanctified, justified. These are other passive words. This has already happened to you. You are washed. You've been cleansed from the dirt. The dirt of sin. The things that I've just listed that some of us have done. You're cleansed from that. You can walk in the fact that you are cleansed. You don't have to now, okay, now i got to for the rest of my life, i really got to work really hard to get cleansed. Nope, you did that. That deserved death. That deserved condemnation. But you know what? You are free from that. There's no shame. You are washed clean. You don't have to go and prove it. You don't have to go do penance for an extra year or two. You are sanctified. You are God's holy, set-apart people. You belong to another city. You don't belong to Corinth. You belong to the future city. You belong to the new Jerusalem. So, your holiness flows from who you are. Lots of times in certain circles we can say, well, justification is the thing that was already done. Sanctification is this process. And there is that language in Scripture. Sanctification is a process. We work out what we believe. But here, it's that sanctified. It's already been done. You are set apart. We talked about that in chapter 1 where Paul calls all of these Corinthian churches sanctified. Calls them holy people. You're like, wait a second, Paul, this does not sound holy. But he's saying, hey, again, I'm, I'm calling you up to who you are. So walk in that way. You belong to another city. And then justified. Acquitted. The big court case you should be concerned about is done. That in Christ you have been acquitted of your crimes, of your rebellion against the Creator. Man, is that good news. Such were some of you. This is what some of you used to be. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Last point. God does not just pronounce the verdict of justification and leave us there. So man, that's good news. I love justification. If you wake up in the morning thinking you are justified for all that you did yesterday, that's good news to wake up to. Mercies are new every single morning. We, we love the doctrine of justification, of what God has done. But, it's not just that. The Holy Spirit... You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. God does not just pronounce the verdict of justification and leave us there. He empowers us by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is all over 1 Corinthians. Paul is all about the Spirit. About power. And that grace is power. Grace isn't just forgiveness kind of floating out there and just kind of a label and a banner on your life now. No, it's about an indwelling power that comes within us. The washing of the Spirit, the cleansing of the Spirit, the sealing of the Spirit. And so, we can be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Not to engage in those kinds of practices, but to walk in righteousness, to, to view world, this world differently, to not live according to the cultural norms of our lifetime, but to live according to the future kingdom, to live according to what God has done and what God has promised. 
And you know this. All of you know this. We come to church to be reminded of this all of the time because we easily forget. So I even just want you just to even pause for a second just say, Holy Spirit, will you help me? Maybe there's a particular sin in this list. Maybe there's something else that God has brought to mind. To say, Holy Spirit, empower me to walk this way. Not to earn something. Not to become something. But man, you have made me your child. You have put me in another city that we are defined by. Holy Spirit, will you give me power to believe that and to walk according to your righteous kingdom? And so even as we do communion, even as we take it into our bodies, we be reminded that the Spirit of God It's said to dwell within His people. To give them power to believe this and power to walk in this. To live like people from the future. Based on what Jesus did in His body on a tree and rose again and empowered by that reality of where we are headed. So let's do that. Let's pause. Let's... Let's celebrate what Jesus is and let's ask, Holy Spirit, would you fill us? Would you help us to live according to who we are? So we're going to sing a song. You can come and take the Lord's Supper.